This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama Live Long and Master Aging is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today I'm in Santa Monica in California at the Milken Institute's Center for the Future of Aging. I'm here to meet the Institute's chairman, Paul Irving. Now Paul is a lawyer, writer, entrepreneur, and future thinker. He's also a distinguished scholar in residence at the Davis School of Gerontology at the University of Southern California and a leading figure in what has become known as the Purposeful Aging Movement. Paul, it's good to see you. Thank you, Peter. Pleasure to be here. Purposeful Aging. Give us a definition. Well, so Purposeful Aging is is the opportunity to remain engaged, to do things that are important, to contribute, and to have that sense, that feeling uh, that our lives continue to have, have meaning, no matter how old we are. And the Milken Institute, you're essentially a think tank. Yes, that's, that's right. We, we're engaged in research. We convene. Uh, we're involved in campaigns, communication strategies, ultimately all focused on, on improving the world, improving lives uh, through, through uh, uh, access to, to finance, uh, improvements in human capital practices and policies, and improvement in social capital. So uh, we very much see this challenge and opportunity of population aging as, as integral to uh, a healthy future for not only the United States, but for much of the world. Now, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the biology of aging. The yeah. common goal of a lot of the scientists that I talk to is extending health span. Don't talk so much about lifespan, but it's health span that's the most important enjoying optimum health for as long as we can. And there is no doubt that many of us are living longer. But living longer brings new challenges. It brings social challenges, societal challenges as well. And that is one of your main focuses, isn't it? It isn't necessarily how we get there, but it's how we cope with being there. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we're, we're certainly interested in, in the notion of extending particularly healthy lives. So I'm, I'm glad you focused on the, on the question of health span, not just, not just lifespan. But, but I guess I would say that, that um, kind of looking back over the last 150 years or so, science has done its part. Uh, lifespans, as we know, have on average have, have doubled or, or, or so. Uh, people have this extraordinary opportunity to enjoy this long, longevity dividend. But in many ways, social science um, has lagged and in some respects has failed. So, so really the question is, is what do we do with these extra years that we've been blessed to have? And um, and I think that those questions at that conversation is really just beginning. And of course we are, I mean, it's clear we are living longer, but the great dilemma is that many of us are not living better. Well, that's right. Um, and there are a whole series of reasons for that. One, by the way, is is the is the disconnect, the misalignment between lifespan and, and health span. So, so the truth matter is, is longer lives are being realized by people around the world. But frankly, uh, health is not health is not keeping up with that. So so whether it's uh, the risks of Alzheimer's and other dementias or type two diabetes or a range of other of other infirmities, 
uh, the risk of, of living long and living unhealthy is, is still a very, very significant risk and one that has to be addressed. But there are a series of other of other challenges that that uh, we need to think about as well. Changing retirement norms that um, are re- a reflection of a very very different time and a very different life course uh, in the United States, for example, when. Social Security was enacted in 1935. Uh, the average lifespan of Americans was about 61.7 years. So here we are with another 15 or, or, or 20, and we haven't changed the system and changed our thinking about how people should work. So questions about financial security loom large. Questions about, about uh, ongoing health loom large. And again, this question of purpose and, and meaning. What do we do with, with this extra time? Well, let's uh, in a moment delve a little deeper into those issues. I'd like, first of all, though, to talk about you and, and your journey and, and how you got here and got to this organization. I, I mentioned that you're a writer and you're, you're a lawyer by training I as am. well. Where did your interest in longevity come from? Well, it's interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd love to tell you that this is something that goes back to childhood as it probably should should have, but it really didn't for me. I was I was interested in a whole series of other social sector concerns. I was involved uh, earlier on in, in civil rights and civil liberties and legal services activities and social finance, uh, impact investing and, and the like. I got to the institute. What happened is I was a lawyer for, for 30 or so years. I went off to do a program, a, a fellowship at Harvard University, and I came back after after my years in the private sector wanting to do something that was contributing. I became president of the institute, involved in a whole series of things, and very early on, really in the first week after I joined the institute, I kind of fell into a project having to do with population aging. And the more I learned and the more I spoke with others and the more I, I studied, the more I realized that this was really, I think, along with climate change, the great challenge of, of the 21st century and that, that it just didn't seem that enough people were talking about it, that it was kind of an under-the-radar challenge and, frankly, op- opportunity. And the more the more involved I got, the more interested I, I got. And I suppose if, if I'm an example of anything, I'm an example of how one can change life because I went from being a lawyer to being kind of an operator of a, of a nonprofit organization and now uh, incredibly ensconced in this world of, of aging and longevity. And have your personal lifestyle experiences influenced your attitudes as well? Is there something from within you that feels strongly about longevity? Well, I, look, lo- when one starts to think about it, longevity is the one characteristic that we, we all have in common, uh, frankly, if, if we're lucky. Uh, and of course, aging is, is a life course question. It begins at birth. So I've dealt with the loss of a, of, of a parent, and I'm dealing right now with a with with two very aging mothers. My wife and my my mom are both are both still alive, and we have we have uh, adult kids. So um, so you know, kind of the older one gets, I think one starts to understand the connection between these generations and the challenges that that aid that aging uh, uh, brings. I've also spent a lot more time with with old people. And by the way, I'm no spring chicken these days either. I'm just about to turn 65. But uh, I've spent much, much more time with people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and even, and even centenarians. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that, is that this notion we have of kind of trivializing them, of infantilizing them, of believing that somehow they've, they've lost it, just couldn't be more wrong. I mean, oftentimes, uh, yeah, by the way, I would say yes. Uh, dementia is 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 a terrible risk and 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 something that we have to combat. But 
you know, the majority of, ol- of older people are still there. They may not be able to walk as quickly and they may, uh, they may have aches and pains, but oftentimes the richness of their life experience and the depth of their thinking and the perspective that they bring to a whole range of challenges is really remarkable. And, and so I guess I've come to see this, this uh, massive and growing population of older people around the world, frankly, as, as, a, as a dramatically underutilized, underrecognized human capital resource that we just have to figure out a way to engage. Yeah, well, we've experienced that on this uh, podcast in recent weeks. We had a, a centenarian just a, a few weeks ago who is uh, totally all there in terms of her mind. She's physically active and she feels frustrated that she is treated as an old person and perhaps isn't, isn't given the respect that she deserves. Yeah, well, and by the way, the, the fact that you even framed the question that way is interesting, that she, that she was frustrated feeling feeling that she was treated as an old person. Well, the truth matter is she is she is an old, an old person, but the question is why should we treat old as bad? Old is, is different. Old is change. We change throughout our lives in childhood and adolescence and young adulthood and middle age and, and on and on. In each one of these phases in in our lives, we have strengths and weaknesses, and we certainly do in older older years as well. We have wisdom and judgment and experience and balance that younger people oftentimes don't have. That, that by the way, beautifully complements their energy and risk taking characteristics. So the point the, the point that that we that we see the word old, or that we think of the word old as as an as a negative word as a negative ex- experience is I think one of those things that we have to combat. And you say you're turning 65, I've just turned 55, both at those sort of pivotal ages where you are considered by some organization or another as becoming senior, and 65, of course, the traditional retirement age. And you mentioned retirement and our attitudes towards retirement earlier. How do you think we should change. Is retirement something of, of the past? The, yeah, well, the whole I, I, concept of, of just stopping everything? I, I, I sometimes call it the R word, um, uh, but believing that it's that it's a, a negative notion. And frankly, look up, and I would commend to any of your listeners, look up the word retirement in the dictionary and see if that's something that they aspire to. It means disengagement and removal and isolation and a whole series of things that are just incredibly unappealing notions. And the reality is that the, the, the data shows today that more and more people are interested in working longer and longer, whether it's in their current jobs or in new work or in, in volunteering. They want to remain engaged and involved, purposeful, as we discussed before. And they see this notion of kind of inevitable decline as something that's less and less appealing, kind of the, the idea of moving, you know, using a U.S. notion, you know, moving to a coastal community uh, in Florida with just a bunch of people their age with a shuffleboard court and a, and a golf course and a, and a, and a rec center waiting to, waiting to die. They, they want to be involved in, in the cities in which they live. They want to be involved politically and socially and in culture and education. And I think that that's a phenomenon, by the way, that we see emerging rapidly in the baby boom generation, but even more strongly in, in among Gen Xers and millennials who see their lives in a very different way. So I think traditional retirement and the way we think about it is a notion that uh, is on its way out. I think it's going to take some, take some time. By the way, it's important for me to say that, that th- this doesn't mean that I – that, that I don't believe in services and supports and, and, and the continuation of, of entitlement programs. 
We need to support people who've supported us for so many years. But the point is we should have opportunity, all of us, throughout our lives. And whether we're, whether we're 25 or, or 85, uh, if we aspire to do something and uh, have this, the, the talents and the, and the drive to, to do it, there, there shouldn't be societal impediments or biases uh, relating to our chronological age that, that, uh, that impede that. So if I read you rightly, then, you're not a fan of senior communities, uh, the kind of communities where you, you become eligible generally at about the age of 55. You can move in. You can reserve your space, if you like, or, or your property. You live an independent lifestyle. But it, it is grouping of people together in a way that I, I, sus- I, th- I suspect think, you don't like. Yeah, well, look, look I, would say, I would say as a general matter, you're, you're, you're right. But I think what we're seeing now, and I think it's, it's good news, is some more creative ideas about ways to engage these communities and, and their residents in, in the broader community, and whether that means opportunities for education or opportunities for work or engagement with young, with young people or service activities, et, et cetera. I think the point is, is we want to be in environments where we're bumping into people who aren't just like us. That's, that's good for us. And, and, and we want to be in, in places that present some kind of ongoing challenge, you know, there's always a lot of concern about the notion of stress in, in, in our lives. Well, too much stress clearly is, isn't good. It, it wears on us and has impacts on our health. But maybe no stress is not ideal at all. It, uh, have, having learning curves that are still reasonably steep, having things to accomplish, meeting new people and interacting uh, in different kinds of environments are very valuable to us. And I think that there's increasing evidence that they're not just Good for good for others that we may interact with, but they're actually good for our health. They may extend both lifespan and health span. And clearly, loneliness is one of the great scourges of our society here in the United States. In in the UK, I know it's an enormous issue. You get to a certain age, and you, you might be doing well physically and mentally, but sadly, the people around you are disappearing yeah. because they have passed away. Maybe even close family members are no longer with you. And to take your point of mixing with younger generations as a part of your everyday life from a relatively young age must be a good way to go. I- isolation is one of the greatest risks to, to older people. And it's not just this kind of abstract sense of loneliness. loneliness. It really has very significant health health impacts. So I think one of the great challenges that all all societies face with aging with aging people is trying to enable them to continue to grow, not only existing but new relationship networks. You know, if you think about how we connect with people during our lives, when we're young, we connect with them through school, and when we're in kind of the prime of our working years, we we connect with them through work. Oftentimes, when we have families and kids, we connect because of our our relationship with 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 others that have have those similar circumstances. But as we get old, friends begin to die. Oftentimes, work stops, and we we don't have those relationships a, 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 anymore. So, the I, I think it's an imperative for all societies to think about ways to enable. Again, I used kind of the words bumping into others. Again, whether it's lifelong learning or ongoing work or volunteering or the way people live, the physical environments in in which they live, to make sure that isolation doesn't become, in effect, a pandemic because of the of the aging populations across the world. There's a lot of re-education involved, especially with employers, potential employers, employing a generation who they would otherwise ignore or have 
assume that they have seen their better years. Some companies are actually doing that quite well. Others refuse to think about it. Uh, there are, I would say, a handful of, of, of companies that, that, that do it. And interestingly, by the way, we're, we're working on a report on this topic on this topic right now. So people always invoke the BMW ex- example, and there, there are various others. There are a series of companies that have older worker internship programs or what they call returnship programs. There are snowbird programs which enable people to work in in various and sundry places. But they're still very small if you look at them on a global basis. And if you took the couple thousand largest companies in the world and and said to – set the CEOs down and said, are you really doing all you can to – address not only the challenge but the opportunity of population aging, I think you'd find very few saying that they are. And, and it's, it's, in, it's interesting. I think part of this is a, a product of our, of our view about this negative age bias, our view about getting old, because many of these executives have dealt with significant changes in their operating environments, significant changes in the population of their employees and their, and their customers over the years. Think about the ultimate recognition of people of color as, as a consumer base, for example, or, or as, as, a, as an employee base. Think of the, the changes relating to women. By the way, I'm not suggesting that we're all the way there in terms of advancing uh, modern diversity policies, but we're certainly making progress. Well, this change in, in population age, we're going to move from about 900 million people, 60 plus in, in the world today, to uh, I think very conservatively, 2.1 billion or so by mid-century. This is this is a phenomenal human capital opportunity, and and only in in policy circles, only in Washington D.C. or London or or similar places would a population growing that fast simply be seen as as a burden on on Wall Street and in the city, Peter, and various other places. They'd be seen as a market, and um, and so smart. Smart employers, smart businesses, smart entrepreneurs are beginning to understand that this is a just a huge opportunity, maybe the opportunity of of the rest of this century. And you mentioned a, a negative age bias. Of course, some people feel that about themselves, and perhaps there's a, a, a lot of work to be done to change individuals' attitudes about their own potential as they grow older, because you will hear the phrase, oh, I'm too old, I can't do that anymore, or perhaps they assume that people don't want them to do what they used to do anymore, whereas actually they could with perhaps a different attitude. Negative biases, these kind of cultural overlays, are really hard to challenge and if and and really hard to change. If you think about how long it's it's taken and, frankly, how far we still have to go, in changing attitudes about race or religion or, or, or gender, you can imagine the long road we have ahead to change uh, attitudes about aging. And you're right. Uh, un- unless and until we can look in the mirror and see our own age as a as a, a product of years of experience and wisdom and and kind of accumulated knowledge, to see it as a positive thing, to see it as, as an accomplishment, to see this window of fewer years ahead as an opportunity maybe to do our best and, and most important work. Until we see those things, it's going to be very hard to, to encourage others to see them as well. I'm looking across the table at you right now, and you have, you have silver hair and I have none. And, uh, and the question is, when you look in the mirror at night or when I look in the mirror at night, how do we relate to, to those changes, those changes that, that we have? And by the way, 
even though this is what I do every day, even though I'm, I'm fighting for older people, even though I'm trying to improve circumstances for aging across the generations, I still have, have the personal challenge of kind of getting over my own feelings about getting old. And I think we all do. Absolutely, we all do. And it can be cosmetic, like the silver hair, which frankly doesn't really matter. It does to some people. But I think if you have the right attitude, I really, who cares? But you, you're right. You, you get older. You, clearly, you will feel a few aches and pains that you didn't once have. But there are ways of combating those as well. But it, it is very much a I think it's a it's a mindset. It's it's an attitude towards what you are physically capable of doing and, and mentally capable of doing. And many times, especially mentally, you're better able to do. You have the benefits of, of wisdom and, and of living that you can then contribute to society. And the irony is, is I would encourage uh, your your listeners to to take a look at the happiness curve. This is this analysis of of uh, which which is fairly well embraced in the in the psychology community about when we tend to be happiest in our lives. And the interesting thing is is we tend to be happiest in in youth and age. In age is it a product of of acceptance of who we are of of kind of a more realistic assessment of our of our existence and our skills and our, our, our prospects? Is it, is it a satisfaction from, from accomplishments of, of life? Is it simply a reduction of stress because we're not in the midst of trying to build careers and, and, and raise, raise children? So, so one of the things that we should all do is relish these years. Yes, they are shorter than, 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 than the years behind, but potentially... Um, as as I sometimes sometimes say, if anybody um, anybody listening to you is is a runner at the end of at the end of a marathon, um, I'll ask you you the you the question. You know, you kind of hit the wall in 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 the, in the late teens, and you get to the end of the race. And, I and, that, yes. and 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 what ha- what happens at at the end of a of a distance race? Well, I personally, you feel that endorphin rush. Not you, not none of that. You you don't slow down. You speed up. Oh yeah. We call it we call it the kick. Hmm. Right, the the kick. So, so uh, I think a question for all of us is: we is as we have these lives of accomplishment, as we've we've had our relationships with our kids and our and our friends, is it possible that we could see these later years really as the kick, as the opportunity to maybe do the most meaningful, most satisfying, most important uh, activity that we that we've done and experience great joy uh, in in these times. The aches and pains notwithstanding. Well, one of the beauties of running a marathon, of course, and and achieving it and, and getting there is giving you that confidence that you can do it and you can go on to do similar things. And I think that's what you're talking about in, in a lifestyle sense, that you've got to a certain age successfully, whatever you've achieved in, in family terms, in career terms, why not build on it? Yeah. That's the disrupting aging that I think you've talked about. Yeah, I have. I, it's, 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 a, it's a term I, I borrowed from, uh, from my friend Joanne Jenkins, who's the CEO of, a, of AARP, but, um, who wrote a book called Disrupt, a- Disrupt Aging. But, but, it, but I think it really is this fundamental uh, question about change and change in attitude. What can it mean? What can it bring? And the truth matter is, is longevity really changes everything. So, so uh, whether it's the products and services that are, that are created to to interest us or the experiences we have or the relationships that, that we, we build. Uh, romances are, 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 uh, are springing up uh, late in life. New jobs are, are being created. Again, people are, are feeling this great sense of accomplishment because of their connection with kids in, in volunteering 
uh, position. So these things are all happening. I think the question for all of us is how can they be spread? And by the way, I would also say democratized because uh, for someone like me, I was fortunate enough to – you know, to be in a, in, a, in a position to change my life, to go back to school, to learn to learn new things. Those op- options aren't available to everyone, and they should be. And this is interesting to me because one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk to you and to do this interview is that people will often ask me if I'm talking about the biology of aging and what we can do to be healthier as we grow older. Some people will say, well, what's the point? I'd rather just live for today and maybe get to 70 years old and let 70 take care of itself. And my attitude is always quite the opposite to that, is that I want to start building on things at that age and and move forward. But there is a roadblock you come against with with some people that, again, maybe it's a societal thing, maybe it's a traditional sort of attitudes that we are fed as younger people, but that you get to a certain age and that's going to be more or less the end. Yeah. When it doesn't have to be. Yeah, it, do, it doesn't have to be. Look, I, I think the, the prospects for continued advancement in, in bioscience are extraordinary, right? We, we live in the, in the, in the era of, of, the, of post-human genome de- decoding, and we're learning more about uh, not only humanity, but we're learning more about ourselves as individuals and the prospects for personalized medicine and precision medicine and, and the like that we've ever uh, known in, in the history of humankind. And so I, I don't see these two questions, kind of the let's call it the science question and the social science question as, as being disconnected. I see them as being integrally connected because if we can keep people alive longer and healthier, then we enable them to be more productive, more engaged, happier, more involved in, in, in society. And that's not just good for them. It's good for, for people across the age spectrum, very good for our society. It's good for economic act, activity, but it's also good for the social fabric of, of our aging societies. So science and social science need to work hand in hand on these, on these challenges. We've touched on some of these issues already, but the power of purposeful aging was a title of a, a recent report that you produced, uh, quite a weighty document, a lot of thoughts in there. And uh, what, what were your main conclusions? Well, I mean, look, our main conclusions, no, number one, again, uh, that, that older adults uh, across almost all of the world represent this massive and growing and underutilized human capital asset that, that uh, can benefit not just companies, but very much societies, uh, and particularly, I would say, the lives of younger people through their through their work and service. And this is true. You're you're from you're from the UK, and I'm from the United States, and certainly throughout throughout Europe, the United States, and 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 many of the countries in the Americas, virtually all of all of Asia, the same phenomenon and the same challenge exists. So, we have so many challenges across the world to, today, as we all know, and those challenges range from uh, issues of education and health and just the social fabric that we know is is tearing in so many ways uh, as we've we've seen with our with our recent presidential election and your brexit and we know that these same kinds of challenges exist uh, on the continent and frankly are very likely to exist in in Asia as as well uh, what role can older people play in trying to heal uh, society what role can older people play in trying to improve the lives of of the next generation. You know, when I was brought up, one of the things that my parents told me is that is that we all have a responsibility to leave the world a better place when we live. And I think, by the way, it's a very universal message among, among parents. 
we need to get back to that notion. And this is something that this massive group of older adults can help us achieve. So, so let's take advantage of, let's not cry in our soup about aging and, and bad hips and bad knees. Let's, we should certainly do something, something about them. But let's also say to ourselves, we have this incredible opportunity to operationalize uh, older, older adults as a force for good and maybe to heal a world that needs a lot of healing. And as an organization, the Institute, you come up with ideas, you come up with thoughts and proposals for the future. How do you bridge the gap between the ideas, the think tank, and seeing things actually happen? Kind of taking it from ideas ideas to action. Our, our view is this is all about collaboration. Our, our, our objective is, is never to, to own an issue or to see ourselves in, in isolation. So we work with a whole range of organizations, other thought leaders and, and, and organizations that focus on policy and ideas and, and kind of practice generation, but also very much service organizations that actually do the work on the ground and they couldn't be more, more important. So, so I think what's happening is, and again, not just in the U.S., but across the world, there's this evolving ecosystem of organizations interested in changing the, the world of aging. I'll give you one specific example. So I sit on the board. I'm the vice chair of an organization called Encore.org. And Encore.org has recently launched a, an initiative to enlist a million older, older Americans in, in service to children, which is kind of a wonderful manifestation, in a sense, of this purposeful aging notion. So so those are examples of, of the kinds of things that we're working on with, with others. And we, we want to see more and more people uh, in, interested in this. Change ultimately happens both at the top and at the bottom in, in societies. It happens through policy change and practice change, you know, in places like Washington, D.C. And on, and on Wall Street. But it also happens at, at the bottom through movement building and social action and and media change in, in media imaging and, and new ideas. And we want to have impacts in both those in both those areas. And you have a, a fascinating sounding conference coming up. We do. Uh, we have an annual conference that we call the Global Conference. And one of the things that, that I do now at the Global Conference, I used to be more involved in, it, in its broad planning, but right now I'm very focused on a series of, of conversations that we're going to have and actually a summit that we're going to conduct with a group of experts in this field, including, by the way, we have some folks from the UK coming over, which would, who we're, we're happy about. And we're interested in talking about the science, which we will be, be doing in, in the social science, these questions about, about purpose, and very much in the opportunities for business. You know, in a world in which the policy community seems so dysfunctional in, in many, many ways, and in which there's so much discord in, in many, many countries, I really believe that business has the opportunity to lead in the same sense that it's embraced diversity in other areas to embrace this notion of age diversity as an incredible opportunity to uh, to realize both economic growth and social good. And as you move forward, entering your 66th year fairly soon, what is your attitude to your own personal longevity in the way that you live your life? Well, I have no intention of ever retiring. <laughs> so I guess not. <laughs> so 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 I'm I'm one of one of those. My wife, uh, my wife, has, I suspect, has mixed feelings about it. Um, uh, you need but, to do but, some attitude changing. Though. Yeah, but 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 seriously, I look. I I guess I would say this: um, having done 
one thing for a long, long time before I did I did this, and that was my my law practice, both as a, as a practicing lawyer and in law firm leadership. I was the CEO of that firm for for a number of years. I suppose I was unsure about my ability to effectively change to do something radically new. And the answer is whether I've done it well well or not. That I'll leave that that to others. But I did it. I mean, I did I did shift my life. I did something very very new with a new group of people and a new kind of area of expertise. Something that I had to study and learn and and kind of start from the from the bottom on. And you can't and overstate how difficult that is it, for it, some it, people. It, you, you work in a career for know, 30, 40 years, and and the thought of going back to school if it takes that. And changing 360 degrees is something completely different. But but I mean others others might say I'm special, but I actually don't don't think I'm that special. I think I'm I'm evidence of the fact that that many many people can do that. And so you asked about about my own plans, and the answer is I don't know. I mean I was joking with a, with a friend of mine the other day, and I said when when I've accomplished this this culture change. On, on aging, when we've made all the progress we, we want to make, maybe it's time to return to my high school fantasy of a rock band. <laughs> and who knows, I'd be more inclined to do that and more able than I might have been a few years ago before I realized that I could do these kinds of shifts. So so the thing I would commend to, seriously, to, to anybody who's who's thinking about this is is go back to school is is uh, realize that lifelong learning is 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 a is a beautiful opportunity is recognize that the skills that you've developed in your primary career are transferable and and the the wisdom and judgment and experience that you've accumulated can be deployed doing other things and that you're valuable that the world can use your help and need and needs your help and that's something you know regardless of whether you've been slinging fish or teaching English history I think is is applicable to to virtually everyone's life. And you obviously have access to some of the best scientific thinkers in this field, whether it's at conferences or at USC, where you also work. What, in terms of diet and exercise and daily lifestyle, have you learned from doing this job? that you've applied to yourself, if well, anything? Well, I, I, I suppose this is one of those things where I, where I should start by saying you should, you should do what I say, not what I do. I do wear one of those, one of those exercise bands, and I try to get my, my 10,000 steps uh, a, a day in and do, do a, a little bit of exercise. I'm certainly not, not the athlete I was, when I, was a, when I was a younger person, but, you know, I try to keep move, moving. Uh, on, on diet, you know, it's interesting. There's... there's um, you may have had someone on your show talking about this. There's a lot of really interesting new research on on diet, on kind of low caloric intake, on on interval fasting, uh, on a series of those kinds of things. And I think that that world is still very much evolving. People should keep up on it. Our mothers all told us that we should eat three square meals a day, and that breakfast was the most important important meal of, meal of the day. There are real questions now about whether that's the case and whether maybe the best thing is three weeks of normal leading on and one week of fasting or a day of, of fasting a week, something like that. I, I would say the good news for me, and I've never done this, so so um, so it's never been an issue for me, but if I had one thing to implore your, your listeners about, it would be to it would be to stop smoking. It's still remarkably in the wake of just unbelievably bad data about about the impacts of, of, of smoking, just remarkably bad. It, cigarettes, uh, I will say it uh, unabashedly, are about the equivalent of drinking rat poison. 
still something like 17, 18, 18% of U.S. adults still smoke, which is just mind-blowing And an me. astonishing number of young uh, people. Right. And, and, and so, so if there's anything that I, that I would just right. beg, beg people to do, it would be to put down the cigarettes and to do interventions on family members who, who, who still smoke. On, the, on the, the, the nutrition side, I'll leave that to the experts. And again, I think that's still very much... Uh, a work in process. Well, you're right. We have talked quite a lot about fasting, periodic fasting, intermittent fasting, the different types of regimes. And although I am personally intrigued by it all, I think there's a lot of potential in it. It always comes down, no matter who I'm speaking to, experts in whatever field, to moderation. You can have a moderate diet and a moderate but daily exercise regime. And, and of course, as you say, stop smoking. Um, you, you're probably not doing too badly. Yeah. Well, look, the, the, I think the thing that we all have to recognize, and I'm more familiar with U.S. data on this than I am with, for example, da- data in the U.K., but uh, about 26 percent of U.S. adults 65 and over have type 2 diabetes. That, that in any other world is considered a pandemic. And there are a series of factors related to that. It's complex, but obviously, obviously, diet and weight are in some ways related. We have to be we have to be honest about it, as are as are other factors. So, we've moved from a world where the principal risk was infectious disease for, frankly, most of human history, to a world where NCDs, uh, non-communicable diseases, chronic disease, is is the increasing risk, and one of the Maybe one of the sad facts is is that is that my country has done a done an excellent job of exporting some of our bad habits to other places around around the world. Uh, so whether it's it's uh, burgers or fries or fried chicken or or sugared soft drinks, uh, we all need to be mindful of that. And it's hard because unlike smoking, which is a a binary choice, we all need to eat. And um, in eating in moderation, uh, for many many people, is tough. So it's it's a fight we all we all fight. It's it's a challenge we all have. It's important for our kids as it is for all of us. And and it's it's just that as we get older, the ramifications of bad diets, the ramifications of of weight, the ramifications of smoking. Uh, and by the way, the ramifications of things like isolation and other and other risks. Uh, it's are, the total are, picture, isn't it? It is. Are are more immediate. Right, they, the the things happen to us faster as mm-hmm. as we as we get older. Well, how can people get in touch with the institute and, and get involved in some of the work that you do? We have a website. Maybe maybe you can provide the provide the information for it. Uh, obviously, we'd we'd be uh, happy to have people follow us on on social media. And I've got a team of people who are more than happy to interact with folks who are interested in learning not only more about about their own lives but what's happening uh, in in the field. Uh, our, our objective very much is to be a source of information, to be an information hub. We will share all of that information, your social media sites, website, uh, through our social media. Thank We're you. at LamaPodcast.com. Paul, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. Indeed. Peter, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And that is it. We welcome your feedback. You can get in touch if you'd like to comment on any of our interviews. And as I mentioned, our website is LamaPodcast.com. You can leave messages on Facebook and Twitter at LamaPodcast. Many thanks for listening.
FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.